In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Robert Mondavi Vineyard in Yachtville, California, has a patch of ground that is considered to be one of the best vineyards, not just in Napa Valley, but maybe in the United States, perhaps even the world. The vineyard is over 150 years old and is called Tokalan, a Greek word that translates to the beautiful. Look at your bulletin cover. On your bulletin cover is a picture of Tokalan Vineyard in Yountville, California. I've enjoyed a couple of bottles of Robert Mondavi, Mondavi Cabernet Sauvignon. Not the high dollar stuff, but not the El Cheapo. The stuff that's about $40 a bottle. Maybe it's gone up since the last time I've had it. One-third of the grapes in the standard white label Robert Mondavi Napa Cabernet Sauvignon are sourced from that vineyard, Tokalan. You can get a bottle that has a lot more Tokalan grapes, but you will certainly pay for it. A friend of mine looked it up the other day, and it was near $100 a bottle. That's the good stuff, the Tokalan stuff, you might say. Now, I'm not a wine enthusiast by any stretch of the imagination, but I'm smart enough to know in having a couple of bottles of this, this wine, oh man, it tastes beautiful. It's a very good wine. But what makes wine like that taste so beautiful? And I say this with all apologies to our friends over by Sock Prairie, Wolersheim Winery. They make very good wine too. So let's consider that. You, you could think of the variety of grapes that are used, where they're sourced from, whether they're blended from different vineyards or from different places. Even a couple of miles apart in Napa Valley can make a world of difference in how the wine tastes. The land on which the grapes grow, what they call the terroir, is very important. Evidently, Wollersheim is on to something over there because they've been making good wine for over 50 years. Where I grew up, just south of where I grew up in southern Illinois, the terroir is excellent for certain varieties of grapes. And people from Chicago drive to southern Illinois all the time to do the wine tour, making a whole weekend out of the thing just like people do in Napa Valley. For a Christian who responsibly enjoys God's gift of wine, a beautiful wine is not so much about terroir or variety or anything like that. We consider that a beautiful wine is a beautiful creator behind it, a creator who makes all things beautiful and for our own good. The water that is made wine in John chapter 2 is literally called beautiful by the master of the feast. In the English translation, it's good. But this is more than good because the Greek New Testament uses the adjective kalan, the same name of the vineyard in Yountville, California, owned by Robert Mondavi Vineyards. This wine is kalan. It is beautiful. Usually the Kalan wine is served first at a New Testament era wedding banquet. A wedding banquet, by the way, wasn't just an evening affair. It went on for multiple days. 
Maybe you came and went as time went on. And maybe you're thinking, hey, that'd be a nice thing to return to these days. A wedding banquet that lasts four or five days that it could just kind of come and go as you please. They would serve the Kalan wine first, and then once everybody, as we say back home, was schnackered, they'd switch over to the not-so-Kalan wine. But not this feast, and not this host, and not this Savior. Mothers do not want to suffer the indignity of running out of food, especially for a major event. Mom seems to cook too much food to make sure there's enough for everyone. When you have, say, a family reunion or another gathering, she would cook so much that you literally thought the Army National Guard was coming over to your house for a meal. She would rather that you eat leftovers for days, even weeks, rather than run out of potato salad or deviled eggs or hamburgers. Well, our Lord's mother is the same kind of mom. She leaps into action just as a good mother does. When the wine ran out, John tells us, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. No one gets to control the only begotten son of God, not even his mother. Jesus's time has not yet come. This is his hour of glory upon the cross, not at a wedding feast. Yet mom believes Jesus still will do something because she tells the servants, do whatever he tells you. It's often agonizing for us to wait for Jesus to do something. As the hymn says, we take it to the Lord in prayer, and it's as if our blessed Lord is cleaning out his earwax. The answer must come, you see, for us on our time, or so we think, not on his time. But you see, the answer always does come on our Lord's time. And our Lord's time is always the best time. While we wait for his time, we do as he bids us. He bids us to wait. And so we wait, often with impatience. But nevertheless, we work hard at being patient in the waiting. We watch as his answer or even his return may happen when we least expect it. And we pray. We pray both here in the Lord's house and at home. For you see, our Lord is not a Lord who is confined to a church building. Jesus also dwells in our homes as we read the scriptures at home. We pray for our needs and desires at home. We even sing hymns at home to praise his beautiful deeds of forgiveness and salvation for us. Jesus helps in his time, and his time is not long after his mom asks him. There are six stone water jars present for the purification rites of the Jews. This is not so much to make sure everything is clean. This is for ceremonial use. And unlike the way that you and I would wash dishes today if we do it by hand, You take a ladle or some other device and you ladle out the water out of the jar and you pour it over the cup, the bowl, or the utensil to make it ceremonially clean. 
If you were to plunge everything into there like you do at home when you plunge your dishes, dirty dishes, into a sink of water, you have now ruined the entire jar and you've got to dump out all of the gallons of water that's in there and start all over again. So you ladle it out and pour it over. And the Greek word that describes what this is, is the same word that we use for, you guessed it, baptism. You baptize the cups and the plates to pour water over something. Somewhere between this water being ladled out of the jars and entering the mouth of the master of the feast, Jesus does something beautiful to the purifying water. He bends the laws of nature that his father created. In doing so, he brings joy out of sadness. He cares for the needs of the wedding guests. His time is always the best time, and now is the best time of all. St. John writes this, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. Mary's son, Mary's Lord, shows himself to be God's son, the Lord of heaven and earth. And this, at a wedding feast, in Galilee, up north, in Cana. Where? Cana. This sign did not happen like a Monty Python skit with a giant hand that comes out of heaven. Pointing at the event. Jesus does not wear some sort of sign around his neck saying, Miracle coming soon. His disciples do not follow him around with an LED board saying, This guy is Messiah. He's going to do something about this. There is no banner following him around saying, Hey, watch this. Though his hour had not yet come, Jesus gives you a glimpse of what is to come for the very first time in changing water into wine. And there's more, because John ends his account of this wedding feast with these words, and his disciples believed in him. Jesus' disciples believed in him because he saw, they saw the good thing that he did for all of those present, and they wanted you to remember it just as they remembered it. Not everyone saw what Jesus said or did, but the servants did. They knew where the water made wine had come from. And maybe it was a servant who told John this story, and John said, let me write this down. I think people are going to want to know this. To the disciples, this was everything. Jesus brings joy wherever he goes, whether it's a wedding feast, whether it's Lazarus' gravesite, or whether it is a locked room on the night of the day when he rose from the dead, when he walks into a room with the wound still fresh, and the first thing out of his mouth is not, Hi guys! It's peace be with you. Peace be with you. Now this should give us pause. Because Lutherans are, on the one hand, really good with joy, and on the other hand, we're not so comfortable with it. We're comfortable with it because, well, Christmas. Christmas was a late holiday to the United States. Our Puritan forefathers, 
Didn't like it. Too much revelry. Too much partying. To them, Christmas was a day of fasting and repentance. Look what you did, you sinners, to cause the Son of God to take on flesh. Shame on you. It was the Germans who partied hardy on December 25th. And they took the Scandinavians with them. Pretty smart, if you ask me. It was, so it is said, a Missouri Synod Lutheran named Heinrich Schwann. He was a pastor at Zion Lutheran Church in Cleveland, Ohio, who supposedly was the first minister of the gospel to put a Christmas tree in the chancel of his church. And they wanted to string him up. Why bring that worldly thing into this sacred space? But he did his homework. And by the time he taught, people were like, why not put up two trees next year? You can thank a German for party time at Christmas. But we Germans or Scandinavians or whoever we are from way up north are not so good at this joy thing. Jesus, you see, meets you here at this wedding feast, a little foretaste of the great wedding feast to come in paradise. He meets you here with forgiveness and joy and salvation and life. Your sins are washed away in forgiveness in his blood. We go to the Lord's Supper, beloved, as if we go to our death, so that when we approach our death, we go to it as if we are going to the Lord's Supper. And how do we go to the Lord's Supper? Solomon Grave. I went to a pastor's conference a little while back and I saw a bunch of pastors going up there, Solomon Grave. I tend to go up there with a big smile on my face because Jesus is meeting me here. And I get to plop down all of my burdens right at his feet. And then I get up and I don't get to take them with me because I lay them all on Jesus, the spotless lamb of God. And what does he give me? His precious body and blood for the forgiveness of my sins and the strengthening of my faith. I desire it every week. And he delivers every time. It's enough to make a Lutheran smile. Jesus, you see, does beautiful things with ordinary things. Even though you did not see it as the disciples saw it, you heard it. And you've heard it all your life. And now that you hear it again, you believe it again. It comes around every year and we get to hear it. This time of the year. To your ears, to your mouth, to your life, this good news is to Kalan. It is the beautiful thing from a beautiful Savior. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus.